You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This stanza we've got to listen to. So, welcome back. If you're here for the first time, welcome. This is Ecclesiastes for Every Woman and Every Man, and I call this little session Everything in Its Time. How many people, well, at the risk of it, uh, of dating myself, I'll tell you that when I first remember hearing that song, it was not on some golden oldies station. It was rather on the AM popular music station in my hometown in the 1960s. But wherever you first heard it, whether you've heard it when it came out in the 60s or you heard it, the beginning riff in the movie Forrest Gump, or you heard it some other time, how many can honestly say that you knew where the lyrics came from when you first heard it? Henry says that he could. My hat's off to Henry. Yeah, well, there you go. He was raised in the Episcopal Church. He probably heard it in funerals, right? Yeah. Well, I didn't know. I, I'll be honest with you. I had no idea. I just thought it was some hippie song with a good tune. But, um, but, but there's more than that, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Let's have a word of prayer. Almighty Father, you created us and put eternity in our hearts. We thank you for the gift of your word we ask that you would use it to turn our minds to eternity, to turn our minds to our place in your time, and for us to understand your purpose. These things we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Last week we got introduced to the book of Ecclesiastes and the preacher Kohelet in the, in the Hebrew. And this preacher who declares himself to be interested in the meaning of life. And he's going to lead us on a survey through the meaning of life. And he's going to examine closely all of the ups and downs in life and trying to determine what the, um, what the purpose of being alive really is. Uh, this, this, um, this preacher, interesting guy, starts with, in, um, in chapters 1 and 2, he starts with considering mirth and pleasure, and, he, and then he goes on to consider wisdom. And while he concludes that 
that pleasure is better than not pleasure and wisdom is better than foolishness, he concludes that neither one of them ultimately lead to real satisfaction and fulfillment. And then at the end of that passage, he said, I hated my life because all is vanity. Vanity being the Hebrew word hevel, meaning smoke, meaning futility. I'd like to turn to the question of time that's, you know, in the little song we just heard. And look at chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. Famous passage that you cradle Episcopalians all remember from your youth. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. If this is jolting to you, things like killing and hatred and war, there are also some more neutral terms that the preacher uses here. A, a quick interpretation, when it comes to hate, whenever we read hate in Scripture, it's probably best to translate that as rejection. That is, in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, the word hate is more subtle than our English language word can really grapple with. And love is sort of the same way, too. They are, they are multifaceted, overlapping, uh, rich words which carry a lot of meanings that love and hate alone don't quite convey. But even if we take the more benign view of hate, there's still war and there's still, there's still killing. And the question arises right off the bat, is this what the preacher says is God's plan? Is this God's um, ordained way that life is supposed to work out? Or is it a more even-handed observation of the ebb and flow of human life? Before we think about that, remember one other thing about hate. Our Lord told his disciples that they cannot serve two masters. Because if they do, they will wind up hating the one and loving the other. And if we take that translation that I urged on you a moment ago, what he meant was you will wind up focused on the one and rejecting the other. You can't have it both ways. And we, we know that that is consistent with what he said in the Sermon on the Mount about you lay up for yourself treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth because you cannot do both. So, turning back to the question before us, is the preacher saying that 
it is ordained by God that we should have war and that we should and that we should kill. Well, whether it's ordained or not, it's it's hard to it's hard to conclude that it's not always appropriate. I mean, this week we observed the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings, which were the first phase of the last campaign to rid the world of Nazism. George Will, the columnist, republished an old column where he took issue with the stupid anti-war bumper sticker, War is Not the Answer. George Will says, well, it depends upon what the question is. And if you try, try telling the, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors that war is not the answer, if it's not the answer, then what are they doing here? So we, we understand that there are times when everything is appropriate. And, and the preacher here is writing in a way that implies, even when he's not talking about these things that startle us, Think about a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Boy, do we ever know that's true. This describes human life, and it describes life for every one of us. How many times do we look back on when we were younger, perhaps new in the company, and we looked on the way the company was being run, and we thought, I'm never going to do it that way. And then years later, we have a certain amount of authority in the company, and suddenly we see it through slightly different lenses. Maybe we liked fast cars when we were teenagers, but now we have teenagers of our own. And every time teenager number one or two pulls out of the driveway, we get a little bit of a sick feeling in the bottom of our stomach. Life has a way of doing that. Life comes at you fast, as the old um, insurance commercial said. And I think that um, the, 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 um, the human existence that the preacher is describing in a way parallels what we read in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes last week, where he's describing the natural cycle of the created world. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place with which the rivers come, there they return again. He's describing the ordered functioning of the created world. And in chapter 3, I submit that he's offering a little bit of a parallel in the way our lives work. What was appropriate at a particular time is no longer appropriate. What was inappropriate then is appropriate now. We find ourselves... In this, we find ourselves doing these things, and life sometimes calls the shots. Listen to the way that Derek Kidner, the um, the commentator that I've cited before, describes it. He writes, So the peace-loving nation prepares for war, or the shepherd takes the knife to the creature he has earlier nursed back to health. The collector disperses his hoard, Friends part in bitter conflict. The need to speak out follows the need to be silent. Nothing that we do, it seems, is free from this relativity and this pressure, almost dictation from the outside. Another way to say that might be that life is one very long waltz, and we don't always call the tune. So... The preacher's point, I think, about 
how life differs, which is, of course, the reason that we read this so often in funerals, because it's a lesson about about the nature of human existence before we realize the reward in heaven. But the question still arises, is God visible in this? Or is there a purpose to it? Because remember, he wrote a time for every purpose under heaven. So what is God's purpose? Well, the preacher is going to take us on a little bit of an exploratory walk for more of his um, more of his analysis. I'm going to read the passage that follows where we just finished. I'm starting at verse nine. And I will read through verse 11 and then pick up again a little bit further down. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Skipping down to verse 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. That which is has already been, and that which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Does that startle you a little bit? What's the preacher telling us? I think he's, we might read this and think, well, he's, you know, he's changing the subject now. He's talking about something else, but he's not. I think that what he's doing is he's looking at the same point from a slightly higher altitude. Whether ordained or not, he's indicating that there is a purpose for what goes on in our life. The God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. When he writes that everything is made beautiful in its time, we rebel against that because some things are inherently ugly. But if we think about how everything in its time has a particular context, maybe what he's saying is that what he describes as beautiful is really appropriate. Like was implied in the first passage that we read. There are times when old friends get something between them. There are times when something that was perhaps a passion in our youth becomes something that either we no longer are interested in or we actively dislike. Life does that, but God's purpose is still being worked out. The problem is, as he writes, no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Another way of saying that is, nobody knows what that purpose is. Stacy and I have a dog. A lot of y'all have dogs or have had dogs, and you can probably share our experience. He's a 14-month-old golden retriever, and he's still got a lot of puppy in him. But he's, um, he, he loves life. He's enthusiastic when it's time to eat. 
He's enthusiastic when it's time to walk. He's contented when it's time to sit on the deck and just be quiet or sit in the den and read or watch television. He's happy just to lie at our feet. He lives totally in the moment. He doesn't seem to have a care for anything that just came before him or anything that's over the next horizon. It's all about the moment. I'm not like that. And I would bet good money that nobody in this room is like that either. And the reason is that God has put eternity in our hearts, as the, as the preacher puts it so memorably here. I would say it's maybe the double edge of the double-edged sword that comes with being made in His image. That is, it is part of our makeup that we think about eternity. We think about the big picture. Our dogs don't. Our tiny children don't. They haven't learned to worry about that yet. But one day they will. We all do. It's in our nature. But we can't see it. That's our problem. That's the other edge of the sword. We can't know what it is. We worry about it because we don't know. And we can't see it. God isn't like that. And I suppose maybe His angels aren't like that either. That is, God is outside of time. God is above time. If you will, our lives are like driving a very long trip on an interstate freeway. We can see what's just ahead of us. We can look in the rearview mirror and see what we just passed, and we can remember it. And we can maybe remember something that was a few miles back, though maybe 50 miles back we only barely remember. But we have no idea what's around the next bend, or what's over the next hill, or past the next road junction. God isn't like that. God doesn't ride with us in the car. He's looking at it from above. He sees the beginning, he sees the end, he sees everything that's in the middle. That's the nature of being omniscient. It's not that God can predict what we're going to do, it's that he sees it. He sees it and he knows it, and the preacher is suggesting he has a purpose for it. But there's no question that whatever the ordination of this time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to tear and a time to sow is from the first passage we read, the preacher is clearly saying here in verses 14 and 15 that this is God's agency at work. Whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God requires an account of what is past. This is God's agency at work, says the preacher. And so we are to understand that there is a purpose even if he hasn't ordained it. The question of how God allows good and evil is one that is, you know, it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about this morning. But I believe that the Christian view of that, as the Jewish view, evident from this passage, is that God uses it however it comes to be. There is a purpose in everything in our lives, the good and the bad. But 
we have a problem with it because we can't see what it is. And that is getting back to the existential despair that we talked about last week. All is vanity and grasping at the wind, wrote the preacher. Everything is total futility. Everything in our lives. Certainly that's the way it appears. And doesn't that sort of add up to everybody in this room? Perhaps you've been in a business situation with somebody on the other side who hasn't quite played by the rules and they seem to come out ahead every time? Have you maybe had a situation where you've done some really good and noble and notable thing for the community but it isn't quite recognized? It isn't quite valued for what you've done? Well, the preacher writes, God requires an account of what is past. God has a purpose for all of this. I'd like to look at one more passage in Ecclesiastes, and I'm still in chapter 3. I'm going to pick up at verse 16 and 17, and then I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 4 at the first verse. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Sorry. For there is, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Skipping ahead to verse, uh, to chapter four. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now there's a depressing thought. Is the preacher telling us that all of God's purpose is worthless because of the evil that's done in the world? Well, certainly we know that there's plenty of evil done in the world. Just a couple of weeks ago, we observed the was it 20th anniversary of the massacre in Tiananmen Square in China. And every night on the television, we can watch the latest reports of the atrocities that are ongoing in Venezuela. And we know that there is plenty of evil in the world, and we know that plenty of evil comes from the so-called seat of government, as the as the preacher speaks. But even when it's not our outright barbarity the way I've just described. We all have this experience of human institutions failing us. Maybe you sought a zoning variant so that you could build your new house closer to the lot line than the, uh, than the uh, regulations require, but the zoning board wouldn't let you do it. And you say, but the neighbor did it a month ago or a year ago or five years ago, but you feel like you've been ill-used by government. Or maybe, again, you feel that you've been ill-used by somebody in power, somebody with authority. And there is evil under the sun. But is it so awful that you, you envy those who have never been born? No. But I think the preacher sets that up as a way of, of, of illustrating for us what is an extremely human response to evil and oppression. 
that it would be better never to have been born than to have been subjugated to that kind of evil. But even when the evil is not that bad, we ask ourselves, does wickedness also have its time? You see, I believe that the, once again, the preacher is not changing the subject. He's simply taking the the progression, the logical progression of what we've come to and subjecting it to the ultimate test. Is God's purpose, is God's plan there even in the face of monstrous evil? Or even less than monstrous evil, just the in, uh, ju- just the injustice that we experience in our everyday lives, can it still serve the Creator's purpose, even if the Creator doesn't ordain it? Well, I'm not going to answer that from Ecclesiastes. I'm going to offer you an answer from another one of the wisdom books, the book of Job. And this is, y'all all know this, Job spends most of the book uh, debating with his three friends about whether his misfortunes are the natural result of something that he has done to offend God. And Job hangs on to his righteousness. He refuses to, to concede that he's done anything to deserve this. And he, he disputes with God about it. And then, at the climax of the story in chapter 38, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. And this is what he says. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the mornings since your ways began? Have you entered the springs of the sea? And then toward the end of that long denunciation, God says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? This is God's answer to Job. And remember what Job says? He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Job's response is, I have no answer. You are the Creator. You are God. God says, I have purposes that you don't know. I have purposes that you can't see. And if that sounds really depressing to us, remember, we are on the right side of the resurrection. We're on the right side of the empty tomb. Today is the Feast of Pentecost. We celebrate today the beginning of the the sealing of the new covenant, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the Christian church. How much more difficult would it have been for one on the other side of the cross in the tomb to grapple with this? And yet, there's hope in that. Because God says to Job, I have my purpose. I have my ways. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter, not the one that we've been reading and hearing preaching on, but in the fifth chapter of the 
epistle to the Corinthians, second epistle to the Corinthians, he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul's point is the same as the preacher's point. God will bring everything into judgment, which is another way of saying that in the end, God is going to make it all right. So I believe that the question to everything in its time, the answer to the question of everything in its time, is that our first need is not to tell God his business. When we find ourselves in difficulty, when we find ourselves in in terrible turmoil, our first need is not to question why God has brought us to this place. Our first need is to understand the truth about ourselves. That's what God taught Job. You are a speck in my creation. You are the clay. The clay does not reject the potter. We have faith because we are Christians who live in a post-resurrection age, who have a certainty of eternal life in the everlasting kingdom. We have the faith that God will bring everything to its fruition and its judgment in its right relationship in his time. That is where we belong in time. That is what we should understand about ourselves. And the rest of it is up to God. Let's finish with a quick word of prayer. Almighty Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your Holy Scripture. And we ask that you would take us from this place this morning and into the world this week, understanding that everything has its time and your purpose will work itself out because you have given the eternal gift of your only begotten Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. And thank you all. And next week, we'll talk about real despair And the question that I will pose next week is, what's the point? So I'm not going to play Woody Allen movies, but you can imagine. All right. Thank you very much. Now I've really got to... You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.